invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapters three and four. We're not gonna do a verse by verse of the, the whole of that, but I hope to bring out a couple of themes for you that I, I hope will be helpful. In particular, just as we, we begin, I wanna read a section from the end of those two chapters. And so I'd invite you to turn to Acts 4.23. Acts 4.23. Now when they, the Peter and John as you'll see, um, went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said, which was basically enough with your preaching already about Jesus being alive. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and sign with sign and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May the Lord bless his word. These two chapters, uh, you'll forgive me for teaching from Acts, but I have lived and breathed church planting for almost 45 years. And you get a little nerdy with it, I confess. And the book which most church planter nerdy kind of people go to is Acts. We're always in Acts, so forgive me for that. I guess the upside for you is, oh good, in a couple of weeks, normality will return, we'll be all right. May the Lord help you and sustain you through that. But Acts 3 and 4 are really interesting. Probably of all the book of Acts, this is one of the highlight ones for me. <clears throat> the church is, of course, only in Jerusalem at this time, but there's going to be a wider narrative breaking out from there, as we know. And so I thought we'd look at this couple of days or a day and a bit. It was jam-packed with real big events. It was, in terms of ministry, it was fairly challenging. So it begins, if you look at chapter three, um, with the healing of the lame man. Do you remember that? Healing of the lame man. Come on, all of those people who have the memory immediately in their heads, silver and gold have I got. Anyone? <laughs> There's a couple of people who are confessing. Obviously, the rest of you have been set free, so you're all right. As you remember singing it, he went walking and leaping. Anyway, there's that story. So three o'clock on, on day one of what we're looking at, three o'clock, they're going to church, going to the prayer time, round in the temple. Beautiful gate, through the beautiful gate, you cut a left into the Solomon's Colonnade. That's where all the prayer meetings were held. Not just one, it was a whole bunch of prayer meetings would be held. Rabbis would be gathering their students for prayers there. But of course, everybody at the gate 
uh, knew that the, the people who went to the three o'clock prayer meetings were the one who took the Torah very seriously and the Torah spoke about being generous to the poor. And so they would position themselves in the right place, the right time, and hope that some of those Torah-observant Jews would give them some money. Then, after the man is healed, there's a sensation. And from chapter 3, verse 11 to 26, there's this hubbub, this uh, people talking. What, have they, what has happened here? I know this guy. I know what he's been doing. I know he's been at the gate. You know, there's a, there's a whole hubbub, big crowd. They're watching the guy. They're interested to see what's going on. And the interesting thing is that um, they get the opportunity to hear the gospel. And I like the point that um, Sandy made earlier when he referred to the agelessness of this. You know, the, the gospel, the, the, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. This has been an old, an old, old story. <clears throat> I remember growing up because I've been in church since I was three days old. Anyone beat that? Ah, so yes, anyway. I've been in church that long and I know we used to, my parents, I can still hear them singing it and uh, they used to love this song because they were pastors too and they would sing, tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, anyway, you know it. <clears throat> I won't sing it because all the old young people in the place will go, gee, I'm so grateful we don't sing songs like that anymore. But it is an old story and I like the way that Sandy drew our attention to that. I'm sure you did too. So there's this opportunity to speak the gospel. It's created by this sensational healing. And so, um, you know, you go home, everybody's thrilled, wonderful Jesus. No, not so much because Acts 4 verse 1 to 4 says they got arrested for doing it. Um, I guess it was a, a struggle for people to understand what was going on. So they get arrested and then there's this confrontation between the apostles and the Sanhedrin, who is the, the ruling elite of Judaism. And then finally, you get um, a, a back and forth with them and, and a threat, basically. Stop with your preaching. Don't want to hear about Jesus. Don't want to hear about him being raised. Don't want to hear you saying words like, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Uh, fairly adversarial, I would have thought. Someone should have taught Peter about being more subtle, perhaps. Subtle. Be subtle. Be nuanced. No, he just said, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Have you ever met someone like that? Who finds the shortest way to a the end of a sentence? You know, who could just say, no, you killed him, God raised him from the dead. Well, anyway, it seems like Peter was one of those. I guess none of us who study the Gospels are surprised at that, but... They had this to and fro and the threat. They were taken into, uh, uh, they were arrested and so on. And it ends with a summary statement here um, uh, about this prayerful response and the state of the church. It's quite a fascinating couple of chapters. And there are a couple of, couple of explanations, I think, that I like to, like to think about as I was wrestling with this passage. There's a possibility that these events happened accidentally, that somehow randomly these events just happened. On the other hand, there's a, 
there's a sense which, in which it might have been preordained, God arranged everything. And I know there are a lot of Christians who find that quite reassuring. I've, I've wrestled with this a little bit, and I want to suggest a third possibility. So I've come to see these events and events like them over the last 45 years. The willingness of the apostles to be obedient to what they perceived their father was doing meets with the strategy of the missionary God every day. And on this particular day, the meeting of those two forces met in a holy and divine intersection of heaven and earth. And remarkable things came out of it. The problem with seeing these events as random is that we sense no direction, no possibility, no, no possibility that would lead us somewhere. We, we don't get that from this situation. And then if we go to the other thing, we see ourselves as mere puppets. But my dear ones, I suggest to you that we are not puppets of the living God. We are full partners with him. We are his sons and daughters. We are born into a new hope. We are not merely to jump when he says jump. We are partnered with him. I think that this is the way we could interpret this passage. That the apostles, by their will, by their commitment to God, had entered into this partnership with Almighty God. They had probably walked past that man begging for money many times. Why then? And it was that day that God began to wrestle with his people and announce to them his truth. It was an amazing thing. My reading of Acts is that this was the primary focus. We, are, we serve at his pleasure, the pleasure of the king. Everywhere we go, we serve at his pleasure. We, this is not random. This is, I'm not living in a determinism or a randomness. I'm in a full partnership every day. I'm walking with him. I'm discerning everything that's going on around me. Can, can lead in this wonderful direction because the missionary God is ahead of me. Isn't that wonderful news? That the missionary God is ahead of you, where you go? Now, I'm a Baptist, so forgive me, but most times when I say something like that, they get really excited on the inside. It looks like Churches of Christ guys get excited on the inside too. <laughs> you think about that for a minute. Isn't it wonderful that no matter where you go, no matter what day of the week, no matter what time of the day, no matter where it is, no matter what time, no matter what mood you're in, the missionary God has been ahead of you. And if your will is devoted to him and you seek him out, to do his will and his purpose, it's wonderful that some days you will have that wonderful moment in the intersection between heaven and earth where things change. It's what we live for, 
It's the best fun because we're partnered with the living God to change the world. Whenever I get a young man or a young woman and I pray with them, I'm always saying to them, come, help us change the world. Let's not leave it the way it is. Let's do something. We may not be able to do a lot, but we only have to be aware of what's right in front of us on any particular day and go into that divine intersection between heaven and earth where anything is possible because the missionary God is ahead of us. Isn't that wonderful? I reckon it is. I'm slightly enthusiastic about that. I think it's a good idea that every day of my life I have this opportunity. And we see this kind of thing, I think, in, the, in some of the language Jesus uses, just parenthetically, really quickly. How about the, some of these things that Jesus said? Um, John 5, 19, for example. Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees his father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Isn't that good? You see, the natural way Jesus lives his life in that intersection between heaven and earth. He's given up his glory. He's come to earth. He's in a human body. And yet he's in this intersection between heaven and earth where there's chaos, where anything's happening. And, he, and he, you ask the question, what did Jesus, how did Jesus live in that area? In that intersection where there's chaos and uncertainty and you're living beyond your limits, what kind of things did he do? Well, there you, you got one of them. I see what my father is doing. That's what I do. Again, John 5 verse 30, um, I, seek, I do not seek my own will but the will of the father who sent me. Um, John 6 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. Um, John 8 28, I do nothing of myself, but as my father taught me, I speak these things. Uh, John 12, 49, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me gave me a command. This, it's, it, it's the way he lived. It's the manner of our master's life. Uh, John 14, 10, the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does the works. If someone who is described as the one from whom all, all things come, will, will be prepared to live like that. How much more should we? In the chaos of living in that intersection between heaven and earth, where anything that happens is beyond our ability to fix. How do you live there? doesn't matter how you live, where it's safe and secure. That's pretty straightforward. It matters, though, where there's chaos where there's uncertainty, where the things that you love aren't happening around you, where you're being ostracized simply because you love Jesus. We used to think that that could never happen in Australia, but those days are gone. It doesn't take too long now. How do you live there? That's how you live. Jesus comes and his manner of his life tells us a great deal of how you live in the intersection between heaven and earth. How you live where there's chaos, uncertainty, rejection, of disobedience. And that is so valuable to us, I think. I think this intersection is chaotic. 
I remember years ago, I was in a taxi just outside Birmingham. Apparently, that's how they say it there, Birmingham. And there was a, a road which is not unfamiliar to what you're seeing on the screen. Absolute chaos. How do you, how do you drive in that? And just a weekend or two ago, I, um, I had a colleague come down from, from Atherton. Uh, sorry, not Atherton, Mareeba. Ever been to Mareeba? Not a big place, right? And he chose to get a hire car, which I urged him not to do, and drive from the airport out to uh, the Baptist, the old Baptist College, which is now the, the QCCC place in Brookfield. You remember the spaghetti junction of roads just, just near the, near on the north side? He got caught there. He drew over onto the painted part of the road and just stopped. <laughs> it's not easy when you're driving where there's, you know, they only just got their first lights. So you can imagine what chaos he was facing. We used to, in this country, be living in a place under a, under a Christendom model of understanding. The Judeo-Christian worldview was still the dominant worldview. There were others but it was still the dominant one. But now, there's only chaos. We have no idea where some of the things we are fiddling with now culturally, where they're going to take us. We have no idea. How do you live in a, in a place like that? How do you live where there's no apparent order? When you feel like you're out of your depth consistently. I think that um, Peter and John were aware of the changing nature of the culture they were living in. They were, I think, beyond their limits. We should not see them as being men at the top of their game. We should see them as young men who had just lost the most important person in their lives, then got him back again, only to see him leave. These were not men with training, with experience. These were not men who had all the things they needed to do the job. They were beyond their limits and they were living in that kind of chaos. How do you live there? How do you live there? And so... We, we see this passage and we, we look at it and we say that's not determinism, that's not randomness either, that's something is happening between in this intersection between God's holy heart and mind as the missionary God and those who love him and who are entering into that kind of confusion with a love for Jesus and a desire to serve him. And you can see it pop up in the passage. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. We, for example, we already know that the apostles can, cannot heal. They know they cannot heal by themselves. But there's that lame man and they know what they have. Suddenly they know what they have in that place. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I know what it's like to live 
where God heals, but you, you are not confident. You know, I remember we were in, uh, I was overseas in a missions trip and we were doing a ministry, we'd shared the gospel. And then I said to him, we're very happy to pray for anyone who is sick. And um, I was thinking to the Lord, well, you know, Lord, headaches will be fine. Headaches will be fine, yes. Headaches will be good. Maybe a bit of backache if you wish. A bit of backache. Perhaps an injury to the leg. That would be fine. And the crowd parted. And uh, three or four young men, obviously, probably grandsons, were leading this very old woman who was bent from her hips like that. And uh, that's at the time when you realize I really am out of my depth. But because I'm leading the team, I can't let anyone know that. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. And so she came up and I said, Lord, this wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. Could you, could you in any way kind of get me out of this now that I've said anything is possible with God? Um, I'm hanging out here now. Uh, if you don't do something, I'm, uh, well, I'm trying to find a way out of the, dark, the night. If perhaps there was a hedge nearby, I could do a homer and, and back into it so that they would never find me again. And with all the courage that I had, I placed my hand on her head and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, straighten up and walk. That was my prayer. I barely had faith for that. But God... See, there's always a but. And with God, the but is always a heavy but. She straightened up and walked. And so everybody, yeah, everybody's, oh, this is great, yeah, it's great. And I'm nodding, yes, of course, yes. Yeah, this sort of thing happens everywhere, really. And, you know, I do this three times before dinner. You know, that's it's no problem. It's, yeah, it's just what happens. I get good on Sundays, you know, that's sort of, yeah. You see, I think, I think this shows us that Peter and John know that they don't have the ability to give. The power is in the name of Jesus. And they were dangling out there. Suddenly in that moment, look at us. What do I have? I have what Jesus has given me. I will give it to you. <clears throat> I think that's what you do when you're out there in that confusion, that chaos. I think that's what you do. You don't have what it takes. You can't claim, I can do it all. This is what I've trained for. You don't train for this. There's so much chaos out there. There are very few answers. And even those with theological degrees are struggling with it. Good God, I have more letters after my name than in my name and I'm feeling confused. (laughs) So we need something when we're out there, when we're dangling in that confusion and that intersection of heaven and earth and we don't have what we need, we need to be conscious. No, the missionary God is ahead of me. And that's what happened 
with this. But take the next instance as another example. I think most people, when they read Acts 3, think that, you know, Peter's been gone to seminary, can actually do it in Greek, but he chooses to do it in Aramaic just, you know, because there are Aramaic speakers around him. And that he really, you know, he, he, he really rehearsed this message. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think he was out of his depth as much when he's about to speak. What does he say? It all happens so matter-of-factly. And yet when he does speak, he speaks like one who is exegeting the Old Testament. And that's what caused the disturbance with, with the elite. He was an ignorant man a man who was untrained, speaking with the kind of wisdom you don't normally associate. How does he do that? Well, he's dangling out there in in this chaos and by the Spirit of God, he's beginning to bring the word. And there are others, there are others here. The crowd runs up to him. What do they say? preaches to them and they hear God has raised up his servant Jesus to bless you in turning everyone away from your iniquities. When he runs into trouble, another example with the Sanhedrin, he seems to have what it takes. They don't find they can intimidate him. He is bold. Boldness is impressive because the scripture says in Acts 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Something was going on in them. And then, of course, you, you have that towards the end of chapter four. The people prayed. They prayed prayed and gave thanks to God and then the Holy Spirit came again and the place was shaken. And When you look at the end of the, the chapter and just right at the end where they talk about the community having all things in common, you and I both know how complicated and difficult that would be. How do you live in the chaos Yeah, there are so many examples of it because what we're seeing is ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit getting on with the business of living their lives. But every now and again, they are encountering some evidence of what the missionary God is doing ahead of them. And they begin to react with it. They begin to enter into what the missionary God is doing, just like Yeshua had taught them, just like he had modelled that. I do what I see my father do. And they would they changed the way they looked at their life. Instead of seeing it just as me living my life, they were living their lives, doing what they believed was right, and every now and again when they would spot what the missionary God was doing, they'd enter into it. And they would see transformation happen. It wasn't just ministry for the sake of it. It wasn't just being a Christian just by name. It was that everywhere they went, 
everything they did, they were entering into it with the possibility that the missionary God might show himself ahead of them. And if he did, they were in boots and all. If ever there was a time when Christians needed the sense and the eyes and the heart and the ears to sense where the missionary God was up to and what he was up to, it's now. We look at around at the state of our country and we worry about it. We are concerned where culture is going. And my message to you this morning is don't worry where the culture is going. Worry what the Father is doing. We'll look for him and be involved in what he's doing. Be bold, be brave, not about confronting people for the sake of it, but about getting involved with what the Father, the missionary God is doing ahead of you. As soon as you spot it, don't sit on the sideline, enter into it. There, for there you will see in that holy intersection between heaven and earth, you will see the very thing you want to see, the thrill of leading other people to Christ, the thrill of seeing lives change, the thrill of seeing families restored. There is nothing better than this. The very first man I led to Christ, I still, I still remember it as though it just happened yesterday. It was an extraordinary thing. If you had known him before he became a Christian, you would have said, that guy will never follow Christ. And yet he did. And I remember years later that his eldest daughter rang us up and said, oh, I thank God for the day my father gave his life to Christ. Because my life has become wonderful. This was a man who was a drunk addicted to pornography, violent. He was violent to his wife, violent to his children, drunk most of the time. If he wasn't drunk, he was being violent. And sometimes when he was drunk, his violence was awful. His sons particularly suffered. And then Jesus comes. And we look at these kinds of stories and we say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Yes, but somewhere along the line, I just happened to twig to the fact that the missionary God was speaking to him. And all I did was say, Ray, is it time you gave your life to Christ? That's all I did. The missionary God, do you get what I'm saying here? The missionary God is ahead of you. Precious, wonderful thing. Everywhere you go, wherever it is, your workplace, your school, your university, wherever it is, your shopping center, or wherever, whatever place you go, the missionary God is ahead of you. And one of the great challenges is we've got to learn how to discern what he's doing and where he's doing it and then say, I'm in. I, I am in. But of course, then we hit the problem. In my lifetime, I've noticed that a lot of Christians now prefer their own comfort to anything God is doing. And I put myself in that category as well. We get distracted. 
And so when you come to thinking through the life application, we'll think first of all what they would have thought, those first believers. You know, they were learning. Jesus is gone now. How do we live this life now that he's gone? How do you live? What's the manner of life? And I imagine that those early believers would have read Luke's account and gone, wow, isn't that good? Isn't that good? You know, God, you know, he's, he's active and the kind of things that Jesus did. Hey, Peter and John were doing them. Maybe I can be too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not very courageous and, and I haven't got all the skills. And, but then I remember Peter, he was a fisherman. He didn't have any training. Maybe he had some weaknesses too. And they begin, I think they would have looked at that and been quite reassured. It would have helped them. You see, first century, they are living in a chaotic cultural environment that is, that is in direct opposition to anything they want to do. For most of my 45 years of ministry, it's been pretty straightforward. I can do pretty much what I want, what I wanted. But have you noticed that culture is changing? It's not that straightforward anymore. How do we live in this chaos? I reckon we will come to look at Peter and John and go, yeah, it's good to know that people can operate out of their depth and still be okay. They, they, they can be completely broken off from anything they're familiar with and yet it's still okay. I think when those first believers read this passage, they would have been reassured in a chaotic environment, in an adversarial environment where men and women who love Jesus are going to end up in jail having lost homes, having lost family, having lost livelihoods and then some of them have actually having lost their lives. How do you live in a context like that? And they would have read that passage and gone, well, that's, that's reassuring because we can see it, it happening. Yes, that's how you live the manner of your life, being alert to what God is doing and being bold. No, I'm out of my depth. I don't have the answers, but God is ahead of me. See, this is the idea I think Peter has. He, he believed that the Lord was ahead of him somehow, that the missionary God was actually a missionary God and he was doing stuff. He could see it. He was beginning to discern it. Somehow when he looks at the guy that day begging for money, he knows this is the moment. I'm going to say the words that actually I don't want to say and I'm fearful to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. I have nothing for you but what is possible in the name of Jesus. I think everybody in that first century, in the second century probably too, with all the persecution that they faced then, they would have felt that. They would have read that story and been very reassured. But here's my problem for us. Because if we look at this passage, we're largely coming in from a culture where you're quite free to worship. You're quite free to come along here. You know, in the second century, they didn't let new converts come to church. It's simply because the government was always sending in plants to find out where the Christians were and then gather them all up. And they wouldn't let you come to church until they knew exactly who you were. And sometimes it would take 18 months before a new believer would get to come to church. Interesting day, eh? They take him to the discipleship class but not let him come to church. 
How do we live now? Because we're largely in a culture which is allowing us a fair amount of freedom. My guess would be that's going to change. There'll be some things that will happen in culture that will be quite, quite demanding. How do we live? What could this passage say to us? The state of the church now is that we have, we have most of us in the church are risk averse and we are also high on a comfort kind of index. We want to feel comfortable. We want to feel comfortable. We want the will of God to be comfortable. We want the, word of, the will of God to be convenient. And I'm, I'm talking to myself here. How easy it is as you, as you go on in ministry and you get all this experience and you get respected because of your experience and your presentation. And everybody says, oh, he's a good guy, he's a good guy. It's easy to get comfortable. It gets so comfortable. We miss what God is doing in the earth. It's not going to be comfortable forever, friends. But somewhere along the line, we're going to have to actually put our big girl's blouse on and get out there. It's not easy. You feel, I don't, how do you feel when you're in anything out of your depth? It's not a comfortable experience, is it? Ever, like that first week at your new job, right? What happens? You hate that, right? Because you like to know where everything is and, and how everything works and you like to be in, in control. You get, you get people who, who love control being where everything is neat and tidy. Everything I've read about revival is that it's messy, it's loud, it's awkward, it's jolly inconvenient. And yet we still pray, oh, revive us, Lord. <laughs> oh, we're crazy. Sometimes I say, Lord, could you do a neat and tidy revival? Could you do that? And I, as quick as a flash, I feel like the Lord's saying back to me, you know I don't work like that. And he never has. Every time, every time a revival has come, what has happened? It's jolly inconvenient. It's messy. Messy, messy, messy. I'm so grateful to God that my great-grandfather, who was a drunk, absolute drunk, big man, violent, big fists, used them all the time, he met Jesus one night, and I've got to tell you, I'm pretty sure my life was always going to be different because he decided to come to Christ. I don't know what it was about my family, but my great-grandfather on one side was a drunk, and on the other side, he was a drunk as well. I'm from good lineage. I kind of read the lineage of Jesus and go, yeah, Lord, I know. I know what it's like to have a few, you know. You know, stories we don't talk about. You know, funny uncles and all that sort of thing. Oh, dear friends. We, I think this passage is saying to us that the risk-averse faith, where we sit, where it's neat and tidy, where we understand the will of God in terms of what's neat and tidy, I think it, this passage calls to us and says, Jesus is saying, come friend, let me send you 
Let me send you. I need you to go. I can't promise you that it will be neat and I can't promise you that it will be tidy and I can't promise you that you'll know what you're doing. But I want you to go. And here's my promise. I'll be ahead of you. I'll be ahead of you. I think this passage calls to us to put aside being risk averse, to put aside being fearful, to rise up in our faith and say, well, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the skill. But my God who has called me is ahead of me. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the idea that you are the missionary God who is ahead of us. We're grateful for that idea. We're grateful because it means that the big deal isn't about us. The big deal isn't about our gifts or our calling or our training or our ability or our confidence. The big deal is about you, your faithfulness, your loving kindness. And we, we just want to thank you that you are the missionary God who is way out in front. You are at work in the world. And how grateful are we for that? We just pray, oh God, that our hearts will rise up with a new boldness today. And we will, we will rise up and take our sentness seriously and get out there and begin to change what's going on simply by being willing. We pray, Father, that your spirit will do a work in the name of Jesus, that will bring glory and honour to him in this place. We pray that all through this region, we're thinking of, you know, everything from Brookfield down to Belbarry, into Kenmore and some of the suburbs just around here to the north. Lord, we pray that something might happen which will be glorious and honouring to the name of Jesus. And the men and women will come and find that he is not dead, but he is alive. We pray that you might answer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.